This is The Guardian. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates, coming to you from Gadigal Land, and this is The Full Story. In 2021, Guardian Australia reporter Matilda Bosley got a diagnosis. ADHD, inattentive and also hyperactive impulsive. And yeah, there's definitely been moments in my life that fit all three. Like when I impulsively decided to ride my bike along the footpath next to a lake and then got very distracted looking at the swans out on the lake and then rode my entire bike into said lake and destroyed one of my work computers and uh, just had to walk home covered in sort of uh, swan poo overall. You start really connecting the dots on some of the uh, sillier moments in your life, for sure. With this diagnosis also came a lot of questions. Like, what did this mean for her life? Why were so many of her friends also getting diagnosed? And what about the stream of ADHD information she was seeing on social media? Could she trust it and was it accurate? day with an Aldi coffee pod because I hate myself. Then I put on my chore charm bracelets that help me get ready in the morning and then I eat some biscuits for breakfast because I also hate myself. Makeup time. In her search for answers, she started making her own TikToks. Is there a problem with that that I forget to do this? Yes. But with ADHD, uh, perfect can very much be the enemy of the good. So it's a good system and we're getting better at using it. Okay, love you. Bye. She also started writing articles and eventually a book. Today. Matilda Bosley on the year she met her brain. It's Tuesday, the 3rd of October. Where's that dust coming from? Still finding debris after vacuuming? Eufy X10 Pro Omni Robot Vacuum has 8,000 PA of powerful suction to remove debris deep in carpets. And it's totally hands-free. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com. That's E-U-F-Y dot And discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799. Finding your perfect home was hard. But thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. So Matilda Bosley, hello. Where did your journey to getting an ADHD diagnosis begin? Uh, so early 2020 lockdowns were happening. The TikTok sort of screen time was getting, you know, to dangerous levels. I, I genuinely did used to be quite embarrassed telling people this, but now it is such a common experience. Uh, a few videos popped up on my feed just, you know, quite innocently that were talking about, oh, you know, uh, symptoms you might not have realised uh, were associated with adult ADHD or ADHD in women. And clearly I watched them with an intensity I didn't quite realise. You know, I probably watched them twice just to check things. So I just got sent more and more and more of it until, you know, every second video almost was talking about ADHD and it was getting to the point where things were just starting to get a bit 
too spooky mm. uh, in terms of how similar a lot of these experiences sounded to my own and how much it kind of made sense and fit. Like what? Oh, well, things like, you know, fidgetiness, but just very specifically in like tapping fingers and tapping hands. And, you know, because you hear about like ADHD hyperactivity, you think about kids bouncing off the walls, you know, throwing chairs across the classroom, whatnot. But I remember, you know, every day, (laughs) you know, my parents would always be like, just settle, settle. Because I was constantly tapping the table, tapping. I'm trying really hard not to tap the table now because it will mess with the podcast recording. Thank you very much. (laughs) But like fiddling with my fingers and all the time like that. And learning that that can be what hyperactivity looks like in adults. It's often a lot more internal and like an internal sense of restlessness, which I felt constantly. It was always very difficult for me to relax. And then just things like, you know, you can't remember all the things you have to do, but you can't somehow bring yourself to use a diary and you keep forgetting things. You And it's hard to even describe this because everything that is ADHD is inherently experiences that every human has. Every human is inattentive and mm. boisterous sometimes and things like that. The issue with ADHD is that it's when it's at a frequency and intensity that, you know, significantly negatively impacts your life. This kind of led to a bit of a light bulb moment for you and eventually led you into a psychiatrist's room. Tell me about the moment that you were diagnosed. Uh, It was in lockdowns. It was all over FaceTime. I go into my room and uh, a a very sort of brisk and busy doctor, psychiatrist, uh, ends up on the other line. And, you know, at first he sort of just basically told me to tell the entire story of my life, I think, to get a sense of the ADHD-ness. We went through a bit of a questionnaire where I was sort of answering a strongly agree to a lot, a lot of questions. One, it was, it often feels like there's a hundred different TVs all on different channels running in your brain all the time. And it was like, oh yeah, a hundred percent, of course. Everyone feels like that, right? Mm. But eventually by the end of the session, he said, yes, you know, it, it, seems like you very clearly have ADHD and you've had it since you were a child. And I just burst out into tears, crying so hard. And he was sort of saying, yeah, I know it can be, it can be difficult news to get. And I was saying, no, like this is, this is the best thing I've ever heard. Mm. You know, this was in the last couple of months looking at these symptoms and these explanations and just this understanding that maybe I wasn't just a worse person all this time. You know, it felt like I was just watching everyone navigate life with this just ease that I couldn't understand. And everything that I struggled with are things that we internalise as kind of morality almost, you know, being on time, remembering to reply to people, being good with money, you know, keeping things tidy, Mm. setting out your life in order. I was bad at it and I thought that made me a bad person. And all of a sudden I had this explanation and I was sort of crying explaining this to him and he was like, okay, let's just talk about the meds. Uh, He was a busy man. You write about how this moment was such an incredible turning point but also left you lost at sea in terms of what to do about this diagnosis. Can you tell me about that? So I ended this appointment with a label and, uh, you know, a validation of a lot of the things I felt and a prescription for, at the time, short-release dexamphetamine tablets, which it helps you focus, it helps you stay on task, it helps basically turn the 100 TVs into your head to maybe one or two playing a different channel. It's just a lot easier to keep things straight in your brain. And that really helped at work. And that was life-changing. It was amazing. It wasn't 
everything, though. Mm. Besides that, my life was, you know, still kind of a mess, really. I hadn't fully embrace and understand or done the mental work about what this meant for me as a person and my self-esteem. And so I really spent this first year desperately trying to do my research, not really finding that much that's useful and sort of just thinking, oh, I'm clinically forgetful and here are some pills that help me at work. Mm. So part of the reason I wanted to write this book was like, okay, I've had 12 months of just trying to go in blind. Let's sit down. Let's do the research properly. Let's actually figure it out. And, you know, if a map's not going to be handed to me, I'm going to write one myself. You wrote this book over the course of a year, speaking to many world-leading experts on this issue and other people with ADHD. And you also included some snippets of your own life and ADHD journey. It's really just a comprehensive and surprisingly fun read. What were the big takeaways from this experience? Yeah. Thank you. Um, (laughs) One of, I mean, one of the first things that I set out to answer was like, how many people actually do have ADHD? Which is a surprisingly difficult question to answer because there's a massive gap between the amount of people officially diagnosed with ADHD and the amount of people that actually have it. Mm. But going through some of the biggest meta-analyses, which is where they basically take hundreds or dozens of different studies, combine them all together. So it's, it's, it's really quite robust. We see that If, you know, you go out into the world and you pick, let's say, a thousand people and you screen them all for ADHD, about 5.9% of them will have it. And that's about 7.2% of children and 2.8% of adults. So 3% of grown-ups walking around have ADHD. Nowhere near that many people are diagnosed. But I think that really put in perspective for me because there was a little bit of me that was worried, like, oh, is this a bit of a trend? You know, I got diagnosed quite early in this conversation, but after that, you know, a lot of my friends were saying, oh, I've got this diagnosis. A lot of people I knew was popping up and I was like, oh, God, what? what and what seeing those stats made me realise is like, oh, that's just how maths works. Like, but what you actually, when you look at the stats, the prevalence rate of ADHD has been remarkably stable for decades. We're not seeing more people with ADHD. We're seeing more people getting diagnosed and actually knowing they have it. So this is a course correction rather than the apocalypse, if you will. What were the other really surprising things that you found? One of the biggest surprises I had was really breaking out of that view of ADHD as something that only affects the classroom. Because it follows you into adult life, it's there when you're, you know, offered cigarettes for the first time. It's there when you are choosing whether to have, you know, that regular glass of wine at the end of the night. It's there when you're on the highway and you're really tired and you need to make a split second decision. Mm. It's there when you're standing on ladders and deciding how far out you can lean. There's adult consequences to adult ADHD. And that was what really shocked me, which is There was one study where they input data from a group of combined ADHD boys into an actuarial calculator, which is what, you know, insurance companies uh, use to estimate how long you'll live and thus how much to charge you for premiums. And it came out that with all these risk factors, they were expected to live 12.7 years less, Mm. a significant reduction in in life expectancy. Obviously, that's not real world stats, but it does show you that, yes, ADHD in and of itself isn't, 
you know, a terminal condition, but it does increase all these other risk factors for you dying early, including substance abuse, including, you know, being victims of violence and a massively increased rate of suicides because there are so many other mental health conditions that really come hand in hand in ADHD. And having ADHD is unbelievably brutal for people's self-esteem. So once you stop thinking about it as like, oh, little Tommy's, you know, playing up in class, you realise that this is a really significant health problem and a health problem that actually we've got quite robust stats showing that medication really helps. It reduces the number of car accidents. It reduces the number of brain injuries. It reduces all these things. And I think that also really changed my view of medication when we talk about, you know, I think there's a lot of fear around it, but you see just how dangerous it is to leave ADHD untreated. Mm. I think to understand why ADHD has such a dramatic impact on some people, we do need to understand a little bit more about what it is. What is ADHD and what is it doing to our brains. So I think the really shorthand common explanation that people give is that an ADHD brain doesn't have enough dopamine. And people tend to think that dopamine is like a pleasure chemical. It's It makes you feel good. You get it when you do good things. Neither of those things are quite correct. Mm. Dopamine is associated with actually a bu- bunch of different functions in the brain. One of the most important is in the reward system, but it's more, it's what reminds you like, oh gosh, when you, you know, uh, sat by the fire, I'm I'm assuming we're all cave people in this, this analogy, sitting by the fire, warming your hands. Oh, that felt really nice. So the next time, you know, it's cold and you don't want to have to get through building the whole fire and the whole process, the dopamine comes in, it reminds you, oh, got to do it, got to stay alive. It helps you motivate. And what we know is that something in that section of the brain is a little bit wonky. So it might be harder to have that, you know, delayed gratification that keep going through the boring stuff. Uh, we also know that another section of the brain that runs on dopamine uh, is the prefrontal cortex, which is involved in, uh, I guess, all the bits of your brain that's organising everything else. So, you know, allowing you to manipulate numbers in the front of your head, allowing you to switch between tasks, figure out the order that things need to be done, keep track of time while you're doing things. All that is called higher cognitive functions is run in the prefrontal cortex. Again, something is going a bit shonky. Mm. The book also hammers home how ADHD presentations are dramatically different depending on your gender, your age, your socialization. But there are some kind of broad categories that most people slot into. Tell me about them. Yeah. So with ADHD, you know, as many people as there are that have ADHD, that's how many different types of the condition there are really. But the scientific community have laid out three broad categories of the way ADHD presents. So one of them is uh, ADHD hyperactive impulsive. So, you know, your image of what a little ADHD kid is, is probably closest to that presentation. Mm. Uh, It's all about the amount of energy and can't sit still and got to keep going, going, going. Then you have primarily inattentive ADHD, which is probably the most misunderstood. So this isn't the class clown. This is probably the kids staring out the window, getting distracted by the birds and can't focus. Mm. Uh, And then, of course, you have combined ADHD, which is when you get both. And it's what I have. And it is just a lot all the time. If you think you have ADHD, do this test. One often fails to give close attention to details or makes careless mistakes in schoolwork or... So, Matilda, 
TikTok helped you discover your ADHD. Okay, so hear me out. You know that thing where you mean to text somebody back, but then for whatever reason you don't, and then the next thing you know, it's been like six months and it would be super awkward to reach out after this like long ass period of radio silence. I can make no other explanation than ADHD hyperfix. Dealing with rejection sensitive dysphoria can be hard. But if you have ADHD, you might know that dealing with RSD and the double whammy of emotional dysregulation makes things even harder. But some are concerned about the influence of social media here. Why? Yeah, look, not all ADHD informational videos on the website are built equal. Mm. And there is definitely some significant misinformation going on. I spoke to Dr. Anthony Jung, who co-authored one of the first papers really looking into the connection between TikTok and ADHD. And they looked at the top 100 TikToks under the ADHD hashtag and found that, well, 90% of the people speaking don't have any medical qualifications. That's not overly surprising. Mm. But then Potentially half of these videos also contained some elements of misinformation. And whether that's straight up myths or incorrect facts or just overrepresenting quite normal human experiences as definitely symptoms of ADHD. Right. I often see ADHD memes that say things like, oh, the ADHD urge to sing random song lyrics out loud, which is a fairly universal human experience. Is this something we really need to be that worried about, though. Yeah, so there is a concern that because ADHD is really a almost always a tangled web with other medical conditions, that, you know, a lot of the time, probably a huge amount of people with ADHD also have anxiety. So what if we're just communicating these symptoms that are actually really symptoms of anxiety or depression, writing them off just as ADHD, and there's a potential that, okay, What if the person who's watching this thinks that this one diagnosis explains everything and doesn't look further, doesn't actually end up getting the treatment for the anxiety or the depression or other things that they need as well? You don't want to have a situation where we talk about ADHD so generally that it masks the symptoms of other conditions. There does seem to be this real fear and this narrative that people are self-diagnosing with ADHD after just spending too much time on TikTok. Is there a bit of a moral panic around social media and this condition? I would say there's a lot of moral panic. Like (laughs) coming from it as someone who, you know, went through this process and was actually quite, you know, disillusioned by a lot of the ADHD conversations and realising how kind of divorced from the research a lot of them are, I still do think it's useful that we Mm. have this ability to have these communal conversations. I do think good things come out of it. But what I see so often is people talking about everyone's going to think they have ADHD all day. They're going to self-medicate, which I just think is the worst possible take (laughs) because, first of all, self-diagnosing is the first step to professional diagnosing. Mm. So where self-medicating really does come in is people who have ADHD but don't know it, drinking because they can't, you know, relax at night, smoking all throughout the day because they can't seem to focus and nicotine has a stimulant effect, accessing a lot of really dangerous drugs to try and get a shadow of the effect of the extremely safe medication that they could be taking if they have been told about ADHD and managed to seek a diagnosis. Self-medicating in ADHD community, terrible problem. Not TikTok that's doing that, though. In fact, it is likely a path to fixing that problem, if anything. 
next. Where did all the women go? Hey, Laura Murphy-Oates here with a quick note about The Guardian. As you're probably aware, Guardian Australia's journalism is editorially independent, meaning we set our own agenda. We don't have a billionaire owner, nor do we answer to shareholders, so we're free from commercial bias. And this independence matters because it means we're able to challenge the powerful and hold them to account. Unlike many news organisations, we have not put up a paywall. We chose a model that means our reporting is open to everyone and funded by our readers who can afford to pay. Every contribution, whether big or small, counts. If you're able to contribute and have a minute, head to theguardian.com forward slash support full story. We've also linked to this on the full story page. Thanks. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. So, Matilda, in the book, you outline how gender and race further complicates the picture for people with ADHD and has led to a really big diagnosis gap. Tell me about that. Yes. So when you look purely at prevalence, the amount of ADHD actually out there, it does seem that boys are about twice as likely as girls to have the condition. Mm. However, the diagnosis rate is not one girl getting diagnosed for every two boys. It's about one girl getting diagnosed sometimes as much as for every nine or ten boys. Mm. Women and girls are massively underdiagnosed. And this is for a couple of reasons. First of all, girls do tend towards the inattentive presentation of ADHD a little bit more. So, uh, you know, potentially are causing less problems in the classroom, thus falling under the radar. We also suspect that the way girls are socialised makes them more inclined to internalise their symptoms, to, you know, compensate with perfectionism and, and spend a huge amount of time masking and pretending to be normal. You use this term masking. Can you break that down for me? Yeah, so the idea of masking, it's often talked about in the context of both ADHD and autism and it's the actions that people are often subconsciously taking to cover up their condition. So for me growing up, it was, you know, really having to consciously think about not interrupting people and not, and listening to the conversation and staying on task and Mm. tuning out in class. So doing double the amount of study at home to catch up on what I couldn't listen to in class, you know, basically that extra mental energy to pretend I didn't have this disability. And why are women and girls more likely to do this? 
Um, so I'm not sure if you've heard, but society, they're really hard on women. Yes. <laughs> I've come across Yeah. It. And this is an area that's extremely difficult to study. So I'm speaking here more from, I guess, theories that people have than hard and fast evidence. But mm. the way society treats loud, interrupting, sometimes perceived as a bit rude little girls is quite different from the way we treat sort of loud, outgoing boys. So Mm. there's a potential that by the time a a six-year-old kid gets into the classroom, the little girl might already have a much better understanding about the actions that are required for her to fit in and seem normal. Right. So boys are, it's fine for boys to be the class clown, but little girls are really expected to be good girls. Exactly. So often by the time they reach their teen years, the symptoms that are really on show for girls with ADHD are the ones of anxiety and depression, Mm. not necessarily the fidgetiness, which, you know, they've confined to their fingertips or the inattention, which they make up for in other ways. And you go to the doctor, they get sent home with antidepressants. It might be really helpful, but it's not necessarily the core issue at play. The thing that really struck me that I'd never heard of was the fact that hyperactive girls might be more hyper-emotional as well. They might be really joyful and they might kind of dissolve into uncontrollable tears. That's not something that I would ever associate with ADHD that I'd ever heard of really as well. We just don't associate that. You're never going to think about, you know, a girl crying in her room every night, oh, that's ADHD. But Mm. because that's never what we've been taught and that's never been the perception of ADHD we've been given in both pop culture or the scientific world either. I want to move on to race. I suppose the thing that stood out to me with race is that there really just hasn't been as much focus or attention um, as we've seen with women and that there's really a big data gap when it comes to race, it sounds like. But you did learn a few key takeaways about race and ADHD. Tell me about that. What we really do see from the data we do have is that a huge determining factor on whether you get sent down the road of compassion and diagnosis and support services or being expelled and fired and, you know, potentially having really bad outcomes. Unfortunately, a lot of the time that decider is the race of the kid in question. Um, One Indigenous woman I spoke to with ADHD was talking about how in her high school there was kind of already this horrible assumption that the Indigenous kids are kind of you know, in the too hard basket. There's, you know, they're, they're, they're going to mess around anyway. It's going to do this. And she's talking about, you know, seeing white kids get sent to the doctors and the psychologists and having this support while it was sort of just assumed that, you know, she was playing up just because that's who she is. And on a wider scale, what we see is that the consequences for not receiving treatment for ADHD and being put down, you know, the bad kid road can be really serious. So, you know, I mentioned before that about 2.8% of the population meets the diagnostic criteria for ADHD. In our prison systems, that is around 25.5%. ADHD people are 800% overrepresented in our prisons. Wow. I mean, we talk so much about the school to prison pipeline in Indigenous Affairs reporting, but I've actually never heard about ADHD as a factor in that in speeding up that process from school to prison. Exactly. And there's the element of, you know, ADHD already does tend to be more prevalent in low socioeconomic areas, but there's also the fact that, you know, it impacts impulsivity and the ability to fully think through the course of actions and the ability to weigh up risk and reward. It's not ridiculous to see how that might go hand in hand with overcriminalization. 
So Matilda, it's probably important to disclose for people listening that I am currently considering investigating an ADHD diagnosis after speaking to a health professional about it and doing some screening myself. But I have been delaying for months for reasons that I think are are probably pretty common. You know, what if I have to take drugs for the rest of my life? Do I want to spend that amount of money when it can cost hundreds, maybe even thousands of dollars? What if I don't actually have ADHD and I'm just a little bit hopeless? What would you say to people like me who exhibit some symptoms but are hesitant? Yeah, and I felt all of those things as well. I think when it comes to medication, the first and most important thing to know is that just because you have an ADHD diagnosis doesn't mean people inherently have to take medication. Uh, They are very safe, they're extremely effective, but they're not mandatory. When it comes to the money, this is a huge problem. It's part of the main sort of accessibility issues that you kind of have to go private to get an ADHD diagnosis as an adult currently in Australia, and it's really expensive. The only thing I would say, I guess, is that if you do manage to have that money, I have saved so much money from having an ADHD diagnosis and being treated, uh, just uh, purely in not crashing my car anymore, um, but, you know, just not losing things, all of that. It will eventually pay itself off, but the fact that there is that huge money barrier is a massive problem. Mm. It is, uh, it's referred to in the community as the ADHD tax. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, just, you know, purely in bags of spinach that have gone to rot in the, in the fridge, uh, that makes up a significant amount. And I do think what you mentioned at the end about what if I'm wrong and I'm just hopeless is the number one fear I had. But I was so terrified that they were just going to say like, no, you actually are just bad. (laughs) And I think what I would say to that is that clearly if people are having these symptoms, whether or not they meet the full diagnostic criteria for ADHD or not, if they're occurring so often that they are having a negative impact on your life, that is something to talk to a doctor about anyway. Mm. Even if it doesn't end up being ADHD, there's so many conditions that share symptoms that your doctor might be able to pick up on. And even if people don't walk away with the diagnosis, I think what's also really important to say is, okay, medication might not be right for you. There's a huge amount of other things to do with ADHD, life hacks, tips, tricks, even just the ability to recognise kind of forgetfulness and impulsivity as things that aren't necessarily like moral virtues. They aren't necessarily always in our control. There's so much to be gained even just from the ADHD community and tricks and tips you can learn along the way that, you know. Right. Even without a diagnosis, I've been reading some of those tips and tricks like, you know, if you lose track in a conversation of what someone's saying, make sure you pause and say, I'm sorry, I've lost track. I really want to know what you were just saying. Can you repeat that for me? And it's a tiny trick that really helps socially. Completely. The entire world we've built has been built for some strange, unbelievably organised mega brain type person. There is a lot of things that everyone would benefit from, from the ADHD community and a lot of tips and tricks because brains are tricky, weird things and, you know, understanding a bit more about them regardless and making your world suit your brain rather than trying to force your brain to suit your world, no matter your actual diagnosis, I think can only have a positive impact on your life. Matilda, you spent more than a year thinking and writing about ADHD. How do you feel about your diagnosis after this all-consuming process? 
I do kind of think that there's a lot of neutral and sometimes even positive stuff that comes out of having the thinking style that I do, having, you know, a really broad attention that can be really disabling and horrific a lot of the time, but occasionally makes me, you know, the creative interesting person that I am and, you know, the ability to sort of like focus in and hyper-focus on something and become so obsessed and, you know, dive in. I'm not sure that I'd want to give those away. And what I've come to realise is there's not me plus the ADHD. ADHD is imbued in every thought I have in the same way that, you know, being a woman impacts every thought I have and my race and my upbringing and all of that. ADHD is part of that. That The Mm. type of brain I have is me in a really inherent way. And I'm not totally convinced that the pure medicalized model is the way to look at that because there are a lot of things that would definitely cure about this condition. But there's also a lot of things that wouldn't really be disabling that much at all if society was just a bit more accepting of someone who thinks like me. You know, if there were more accommodations, if we did just stop moralising all these things so deeply, there's a world in which they wouldn't be problems at all. That was Matilda Bosley. She's a reporter at Guardian Australia and a frequent presenter on Guardian Australia's TikTok account. She's also the author of the book, The Year I Met My Brain. That's out now and you can find it in your local bookshop. Run, don't walk, to buy. If you liked this episode, don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already or, or follow Full Story wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also leave a review. This episode was produced by Daniel Simo, Alison Chan and Joe Koning, who also did the sound design and mixing and is the creator of our theme music. The executive producer is Hannah Parks. I'm Laura Murphy-Oates. Thanks for listening. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.